How is it that God brings about peace? I wanted to do something a little bit different. I wanted to read a little bit from an earlier passage in Isaiah, this great, this great feast in Isaiah 55. It says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. I hear all the flipping of the pages. I'm just, this is just intro. We'll get, we'll get to that, the text we're in today, right? Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. And uh, why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Right? And then in verse 3, it says, Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant. Right? This everlasting peace. How does God, so here's my question, how does God bring that about? Right? It's this picture of this kind of family banquet. Now, I don't know about your family banquets, but when we have family banquets, it's often not super peaceful, right? You got quite an array of people and you have, you know, long-standing conflicts with certain maybe members of your family. You got the grumpy uncle who has a certain kind of disposition that he brings to the table, right? So a lot of the feasts that we go to are not these places of peace. They're often these places that have some fun, but there's also a lot of conflict there. So I asked the question, what does God do to bring about this peace that he is offering all throughout? Because we're, we're in Isaiah. We're getting to the last few chapters here where God is going to paint this portrait for us of what is to come, of this, of this peaceful eternity that's coming. And yet, how do we get there? How is it that we go from where we are now, which there is not peace, to a place where there is peace? And here's another way of asking the same question. Well, what's the thing that causes division among us? What's the problem? So another way of asking how does he bring about peace is how does he deal with sin? How does God deal with sin, this this the stuff in us that we willfully participate in, that we willfully do, how does he deal with that? So we're in Isaiah 63 this morning. So flip to Isaiah 63. A lot of prayer and thought has gone into this sermon because we're going to look at a, basically a vision this morning. Isaiah has a vision. Now, our favorite vision of Isaiah is from, you know, Isaiah 6, I think, right? Where he's, he's in the Holy of Holies, where he's there and uh, he's seeing the cherubim and the Holy, 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 right? Isaiah's vision of the Lord in chapter 6. We love that vision. Now we have a different vision. Isaiah 63. And I want to couch it with the question of, how does God bring about his peace? Because the, the, the banquet in 55 is a peaceful banquet. It's a banquet of joy. It's a banquet of life. It's a banquet of abundance. So here, let me say this. There's something missing that in Isaiah 55, which we want it to be missing, right? The thing missing is division. The thing missing is anxiety, right? How many of you have good feasts when you're super anxious? I know I don't. I don't even eat. I'm like, well, I'm not really hungry. Right? It's, and so we are going to look at today how God brings about one of the ways God brings about his peace. So let me, let me pray for us. We'll dive into our text. I'm going to read verses one through six real slow, and I'm going to probably read them at least twice because I want to make sure that we don't miss what's happening. Sometimes we have a tendency to brush through the uncomfortable parts of the Bible, and we do not want to do that here. And what I mean by here is the people of God in the church. 
So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into Isaiah 63. Lord, we need the peace that you bring. Lord, I pray that this text will unsettle us. Lord, some of us are real settled this morning, and we need not be. Lord, for some of us, this peace will bring, or this text will bring peace. For some of us, this text will bring anxiety. Lord, we pray that your spirit is in both. That you would be a God who disrupts our complacency and awakens us to life. Lord, would we behold you this morning? Would we delight in what we see? Lord, help us. We need you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just to, just to set the stage, you have Isaiah, right? He's in 740 BC. He's preaching to the people of God. And so he's telling them, hey, uh, you need to listen to the Lord and you need to trust in him. You keep kind of going your own way. Trust in him. Trust in him. Remember who he is. The people had forgotten who God was. So then, And so that, that goes back and forth, this kind of correction and encouragement happening throughout the book. And 39, this little change happens where, where they, uh, I say little, this change happens where they're taken into captivity, into Babylon, because they have refused to trust the Lord. And so what's happening now, hear me, what's happening now is these last few chapters is Isaiah vision casting to the people of God. Here is what awaits for us. The new heavens and the new earth explicitly will be dealt with in the next few weeks. And so he's painting this picture of this, this beautiful rest that's to come. And, and, and how do we get to that rest? Well, Isaiah 63 is a part of how we get to that rest. So let me read this for us. We're just going to do the first six verses. We're actually going to cover 63 and 64 today, but I'm going to read the first six verses as we begin our text. Again, this is a vision, really, that Isaiah is having. So this is Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimsoned garments from Basra. He who is splendid in his apparel and marching in the greatness of his strength. So he's asking a question. He gets a response to the question. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Verse 2, he, there's this little dialogue happening in this vision that he's having. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads in the winepress. And then he gets a response from this, this marching one who's coming from Edom. Verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, 
and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is the word of the Lord this morning, at least the beginning of it. What do we think about that, church? You know, I didn't, sometimes when I read, you'll get like, mm, mm, mm-hmm, mm, mm, yeah, mm, read it, read it, mm. Uh, not this morning for that one, right? Man, flip with me if you'll go, flip over to Isaiah 61, just, just one little verse, you know, page over. So my Easter sermon, we preached from Isaiah 61 because it was out of the mouth of Jesus who we have quoting this. The interesting thing is that when Jesus quotes this, and I don't know if you caught it, I, I, you know, obviously I was preaching it, so hopefully I caught it, but uh, I was reading it. Uh, look at verse two. Well, I mean, you don't want to skip verse one, right? The spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me. This is Jesus saying this in Luke 4, right? He says, he quotes literally, to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. This is all verse 1. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We're like, yeah, yeah, do it. Woo, right? You're reading all that. Then you get to verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then this weird little insertion in verse 2. And the day of the vengeance of our God. Yeah, let's keep moving. You know, to comfort those who mourn, right? It's like the rest of it's really like positive and encouraging. And he just, he just slides it in there, right? The day of vengeance of our God. It's like, whoa, where was that? Because here, and, and when you go read Luke 4, Jesus doesn't read that part of, of the Isaiah quote. Huh. He's just picking and choosing what he wants to preach. You know, just preaching the easy stuff. No, what happens is you have Jesus himself who's actually saying, yes, I have come, look at verse 2 of, of 61, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, meaning the first coming of Jesus where he comes and he pours out his own blood, where he executes Isaiah 53, where he is crushed. That language, right? He is crushed for our iniquities. So he is bringing the year of the Lord's favor, but what goes with the year of the Lord's favor by necessity and by definition, the second phrase there is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Those two things go together conceptually, and yet they're separated by some time. The first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So here's the thing. You and I love the idea of how is Jesus going to bring peace? We're like, okay, bring the peace, right? You go back and read all of Isaiah. The lion and the lamb. We have our little gospel, little hats. You've seen those? They have a little lion and the lamb. You can get one at the Connect Center, right? Right. Where does that come from? Isaiah. Isaiah 11. Where the lion and the lamb will lay down together because now the lamb isn't a, a chicken nugget anymore to the lion. Right? He's not like, ooh, dinner. He's like, no, this is my pal now. Jesse preached that sermon, right? So we love all that, but how does that happen? How does that happen? What happens because of Isaiah 63? Let's look at what's happening here. So you have this one who is walking, right? You have this one who comes from Edom, which Edom, by the way, is kind of the, the old descendants of Esau. There's this animosity between Israel and Edom. They're, they're kind of become kind of a, a parable, if you will, of the enemies of God, right? Th those who are adversaries of the ways of God. They're, they're Edom. Basra is the capital of Edom, which if you look at a map of the old ancient maps, Edom is basically due south of Israel. And so you have Basra where they're coming, you know, a little bit south 
uh, southeast. And so he's, this, this one is coming. This is a little vision that he's having. And he look at this person. He is splendid in his apparel. He is marching in the greatness of his strength. So whoever this person is who is marching, one, they are decked out in, in really cool clothes and they have some swagger about them. Right? Look at what it says. Who is splendid excuse me, is marching in the greatness of his strength. Whoever this guy is that they're seeing walk up, this person is a man of might. This person is a man who is clearly carrying himself confidently. And then he's basically saying, who are you? And then we hear the Lord respond. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Note that he leads with that. He's saying he is one who is capable to save wanting to save, able to save, right? So there's a few things we want to see about this trampling that we're going to see. Look at verse 2. Again, I'm trying to go through this slow. I don't want to skip this. I want us to see this. I want us to get a little uncomfortable. Many of you probably already are. Why is your apparel red? Like, why is he wearing red clothes? And your garments like his who treads the winepress. Huh. So basically, he sees that there's this warrior. He sees that he's adorned in splendid apparel, but he's noticing that it's stained with some sort of red substance. There's red all, all kind of, you know, in his clothes. I wonder what it looked like before. We don't know. We just know that he's, it's basically entirely red. It's just red garment. Look at verse 3. And verse 2 helps us understand that, like, you know, it's like one who's in the wine press, and then he basically says, yeah, I, ha- I have been in a wine press. I have not trodden the wine, or I have trod, trodden the wine press alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. There was nobody else who could do this work. No one else can do what he is doing in the trotting of the wine press. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Golly. Man, what's going on here? We, 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 have to, we, love the, we love the light encouraging stuff, but here's the thing. We don't get to the light encouraging stuff without dealing with the darkness that surrounds us and even that's in us. It needs to be dealt with. We don't get to a day of peace without the thing that causes uh, the conflict to be taken away. We actually need this to happen. Could hear a pin drop, right? So, so a couple of things we see here in verse four and five and six. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. So, the first thing I want us to see is that wrath brings redemption. Wrath brings redemption. Listen, you don't. Have a God of love without wrath. Right? You've heard me say this before. You'll hear me say it again and again and again and again and again. God is a God of wrath because he's a God of love. Wrath 
by definition, in its very essence, comes because he is a God of love and anyone who's ever loved anyone else knows what I'm saying. Have you ever seen someone willfully, purposefully sin against someone that you cared about? Lots of pictures come to mind. Just a, one, one that comes from my own uh, history of uh, some things I've experienced. You walk up to the playground and your child is there. A grown adult male is shown throwing your kid to the ground and standing over them and screaming at them. How do you feel? I know how I feel. I'm like, oh, hold up. Uh, what is happening? I don't care what my kid did. That ain't, that ain't, that ain't, that, uh, 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 right? right? Which is right, right? When we see abuse happen, we don't go, oh, you know, it, it, it's fine. Something is disrupted in us. So what we have here is this portrait of uh, the God of love, the God of eternity, the God of Isaiah, the, the Holy One of Israel who has come. And what he is doing is he is doing alone the work that he can do. And what he is doing is he is taking all of the sin of the world and he is dealing with it. So lest we forget, there are two ways that God deals with sin. Two ways. The first one we witnessed in Isaiah 53, where he is crushed for our iniquities, right? Upon him was the transgression of us all. This is the portrait of the crucifixion of Christ, where he is taking on our sin, right? He's taking on our sin in Isaiah 53, and we would sing amen and hallelujah, and we sing of it every time we gather as we should, because there are two ways that God deals with sin. One is through the cross of Christ, and the second is what we see beginning to be portrayed in Isaiah 63. You know, we, we take sin lightly, God does not. We make sin this small thing. God does not. There is no eternal peace. There's no everlasting covenant of peace ahead with sin in the midst of it because it won't be peaceful. And so what we have here is we have God. Let's read verse 4 and 5 and 6 again to, to get this language out. So we heard that, uh, that, that God's wrath brings about redemption, right? For the day of vengeance was in his heart and the year of, uh, my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. This is where you say vengeance is mine, right? Vengeance isn't yours. This isn't you treading the wine press of your own wrath. No, no, this is God doing the work that only God can do. There was no one to help. So the second thing we see about wrath is it also brings about salvation, right? When we look at Isaiah 53, how is it that Jesus takes care of sin? What are words we use? He atoned for it. He paid for sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. Interesting language. Here we're talking about the crushing of grapes in the wine press. It's as if Jesus also sees this wine press and voluntarily jumps in to go underneath the feet as his 
wrath is treading upon Jesus so that Jesus can take upon himself what belongs to us, you, me. So we see that wrath brings about redemption. We see that wrath brings about salvation. But look at verse 6. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. The last thing I want us to notice about this wrath is it's God's alone. It's only him. He's the only one who can do this work because you and your wrath is a danger to be dealt with and usually is accompanied with a heavy dose of sin. And so when you come in your wrath, it's not a good thing. But God coming in his perfect love and God coming in his perfection and him executing his wrath is a actually, as weird as it sounds, a wonderful thing. What we have here is God taking the rebellion of man and getting rid of it. Right? So he trampled down the peoples in his anger. This is the Lord speaking. I made them drunk in my wrath which even that phrase is a little bit like, what's he doing there? We don't fully understand that. But the last phrase here, I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. He's basically saying, I took care of all the rebellion of men. So that's what's happening. So we get more of this in case you're going like, I want more. We get more of this in 65 and 66 where he will kind of go back and forth. So we'll get into that. So you can wait. So this is the beginning of this, which what's happening in Israel when they read this passage is what's happening in you right now, which is like, uh, uh, uh. so uh, flip with me to 2 Thessalonians 1. I'm trying to go slow here. I'm trying to watch my tone. As I said in another sermon we preached about the the judgment of God, you know these texts are meant to encourage us? These texts are in here to encourage us. So that we know that, that, that when we see evil done, God will deal with it. So 2 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 5, gives this kind of summary of what's happening here. It's part of the beautiful thing. This isn't like, you know, some of you may sit there and be going like, well, that was the God of the Old Testament, you know, God, and he's not like that anymore. Like, it's different now. No, same God. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. This, again, this is, I mean, this is out the gate. This is, you know, we're in chapter 1 of this letter. This is how Paul sets the stage. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And look at verse 8. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Wow. Wow, this is why we preach the Bible, church. 
right? Who's going to go, hmm, where is there a sermon that we could preach about God treading out the winepress of his wrath? Let's do a topical one on that. We don't do that. We, we find these texts and we go, man, this is in a section on encouragement where he's encouraging the people of God of what will come. And here's one of the unavoidable realities that we want to we we lay out before you because the scriptures are very, very clear. Did you hear the language? Verse 8, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't stop there. Verse 9, they will suffer in the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It's a decent question to say, why would you preach that? Why would you read that? And here's why. Because it is true, church. And may we not be coerced or, or sung to sleep about the reality that we find ourselves. We are, you and I, people, as Jonathan Edwards said in his great, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon, right? We are those who are dangling over an eternal damnation that is, that is, that is real, right? And we don't want to pretend that it's not. To not talk about this is to be unloving. For God not to be expressly clear on what he is doing with sin, with those who are in active rebellion against him, right? And he summarized that here in 2 Thessalonians in a really nice and concise way. Those who do not know God, those who have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, this is, this is the words of the text. So what he's saying here is, look, this is not what he wants for eternity. He's, he's not wanting you to, to, to have to suffer eternal damnation. What he's wanting is, man, could you, let's go back to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 is what, is, what he's, is what he's calling for. Let's tie in the language of Isaiah 55 with 2 Thessalonians. So you heard what I just read. And I want you, I want you to marry that up with what, the language you hear, hear in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Man, are you not thirsty this morning, church? Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And my soul already feels better. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Stop eating the garbage that you are eating and eat from the hand of God. Incline your ear and come to me. Here. Let me just pause right there. Do you hear what I'm telling you this morning, church? Do, do you hear what I'm telling you? That there is an eternal God who is eternally lovely and who is compelled in every facet of all of his operating by the fact that he is a God of love. That he can do nothing else than to do the most perfect and loving action that could ever be. And that God who is perfectly loved in the perfection of his being and the beautiful splendor of all that he is, that God, the God of love, is trampling out sin in the enemies of God in the winepress of his wrath. That is true. 
May we not tame our God. Oh, I want to go to Isaiah 55. Look at verse 6. I want you to notice the language there. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Note, we get this treading out the wine press of his wrath in chapter 63. 66 chapters of this book. Because for 62 chapters, God has been saying stuff like this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do you see what he is offering? And we see this the world over. It doesn't matter what continent you live in. That God is calling out. And when people turn, we see signs, we see visions, we see missionaries, we see all sorts of people who are calling out to the nations and they are hearing the call and believing upon him. Do we believe enough in his goodness to to read about Isaiah 63 and say, amen. Sin is being dealt with. I know I have my own that I want to have dealt with and I've got to turn to him, right? And interestingly enough, verse eight, right? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Man. So this is the, the portrait that we get this one treading out this wine press. Let's go back to 63. This is warning. This is encouragement. This is to say God deals finally, fully, completely with sin. He deals with the enemies of God and He is inviting all people to come and drink, but they're going to have to turn to Him. They're going to have to, as, as Thessalonians made it really clear, they're going to have to know God by believing or slash obeying the gospel, which is really the same thing that they're submitting themselves. Right? I love that he used the word obedience to obey the gospel, which makes it a little bit more than just our intellectual idea of like, yeah, I know Jesus and my ideas. No, no. Do you, do you, have you submitted yourself to him? So he, he, he does that in the first six verses. I want you to look at verse seven. So what you guys are feeling is what Israel is feeling. And then we have verse 7. I mean, we're talking like, this is so Isaiah. Right? He drops that on us, verses 1 through 6. And you're like, whoa. And then we get verse 7, which in the Hebrew, by the way, is really beautiful. You have this really, really like intense passage in Isaiah 63, 1 through, 1 through 6. And the very first two words, it's different than in the English. He says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, uh, the praises of the Lord. But in the Hebrew, it starts with the first word, which if you're, if you're an Israelite, the first word in the Hebrew text, after you read all this, is chesed. Chesed Yahweh is how it starts. Which it's almost like you're reading it and you're like, oh my goodness. Oh man, I deserve to be in that, that vat. I've been a rebel against God. I know I deserve to be in there. I, uh, uh, and then you have chesed Yahweh, which chesed is that word for steadfast love, loving kindness, right? Loyal, 
love, covenantal love, committed love, right? That we can't, we can't find the right English way to render it because it's not really a one for one. Chesed is this thing that is, is usually in the Old Testament. It's, it is like all over the Old Testament. It is usually sandwiched up with this idea of covenant where God commits himself to his people. So the next section, verses seven, it says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. They are seeing that there is a tension between who they are and who God is, right? Although this passage, right, this passage of judgment is against the enemies of God, those who are not following after the Lord. So he goes in this recounting, which I can't go through. I'm not going to read all of it. Verses seven, I wanted to read the, the, uh, the easy part there. The joke. The easy part there, verses one through six. So then he says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. So look at verses seven through 14. So I'm not going to read all of it. He basically recounts who God is and what God has done. Basically, this is a recounting of the Exodus. He talks about all the things that he has done, right? Verse eight, for surely you're my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he has become their savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. So he goes through all of that. And so what happens is he basically is, is Israel and Isaiah as a representation of Israel is seeing the one treading out the wine press and basically says, oh man, this whole book, Lord, we've been talking about how we, we don't get it and we're missing things. And so he basically, he prays to God and, and basically says, remember all that you've done, Lord, in verses 7 through 14. And then verse 15, he specifically starts getting into this actual prayer of like, all right, Lord, like, like look down from heaven and see. So read with me. This is, this is Isaiah 63, 15. From your holy and beautiful habitation where your zeal Uh, excuse me, where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer uh, from of, of old is your name. Excuse me. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we, uh, we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants the tribes of your heritage, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those, this verse 19 is really important. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled. He basically is saying we've become like Edom. We've become like these ones who are in the wine vat. We have become like those whom you've never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Man, that's what we've become. But it doesn't stop there. We're going we're to jump down to the mid part of verse 5 and 64. This is our application. So what do we do when we see how God brings about peace? We see that he does it by crucifixion, and he does it by treading out the winepress of his wrath. And so what do we do, and this is what we do, is we pray these kinds of prayers. This is verse 5 of 64. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name 
who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Look at verse eight. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness and Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? So next week, we get Yahweh's response to that. 65 and 66 is God's response to the pleading of his people. But I want you to see what we have here is that they see the winepress of the wrath of God. And what we have is we have this admission that they have lived in sin, that they need the rescue of God, that they cry out to him. So here's my question. As we read this text this morning, what is your response? What, what, what rises up in you? Is it dread? Is it, is, it anger? is it anger? Like, are you like, man, psh, I didn't come to church to hear that. I don't like this. What, what do you hear when you hear about God rightfully judging those who have sinned and worked and rebelled? And just to be clear, right? Sin is like rebellion against God. Like sin is us saying, we know the way, we know how to do it. We're going to do things our way. We're going to do what we want. We like the way that we do things. So Lord, you just kind of stay over there. That, that's essentially what sin is. We like to soften it up. To like, well, it's not that big a deal. So when you hear that, when you hear about the treading out of the wine press of, of his wrath, what happens in you? Because here, here is what, what God wants, is he wants us to hear that. And he wants us to say, yeah, God, God needs to deal with my, my stuff. And, and he dealt with it on the cross through Christ. But if I don't want to go to the, to the cross of Christ, if I don't want to behold my, my suffering Savior who willfully lovingly, voluntarily gave himself up for me. If I want to look upon Christ and say, yeah, no thanks. I, I, I'm going to do, do things my way. I, you know, this, I like this kind of a cool idea, but you know, you guys do you. I'm going I'm to do me. And if we're not going to take the covering that comes by the suffering servant, by the blood that he sheds so that we would have his garments, if we want to kind of walk in our own garments, right? our own polluted garments, then, then, then what covering do we have? God has to deal with sin. He has this eternal party that he's going to be throwing. He has this eternal banquet that he, he, he is wanting us all to be at, but, but he's not going to let division and rebellion and pollution come into the party and wreck the celebration that he has ahead. And it's because he's perfectly loving. So my question for you this morning is, what happens in you when you read this? Do you just sit there and shake your head and go, nope, I don't follow God like that. And what I want to submit to you is if you don't follow a God like that, you don't follow God according to his word. 
and to how he reveals himself. That he is a God who is unequivocally, unapologetically just and righteous. And so to put it starkly, right, we see this in Joshua, choose this day whom you shall serve. There is eternal life. I want to be really clear. This is, I'm going to lay this out, right? There is eternal life offered by Jesus. This is why we have Jesus, that there is this eternally important, weighty, substantive thing that God is doing. This is why the Son of God became man to die a gruesome and horrible, humiliating, crucified death. So he does this to offer you life. He desires that you would come. Come to him while you can, he says, right? This is the language we hear in in many places in the Old Testament, right? He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The same language. This is an illustration, a vision of what that is. He's abounding in love slow to anger, but there comes a day where he goes, I have to deal with all this. So here are the choices. So I want to be really starkly clear. Either we obey the gospel, right? We believe upon Christ. We know God as Thessalonians talks about and obey the gospel. Or the other option is that we are found amongst the bodies of those in the winepress of his wrath. I just want to spell it out really clearly. I don't want to dance around it. I don't want to be ambiguous. Those are our options. The world would have us create a bunch of other create your own endings where we can go, well, I don't know if I like those. Uh, I have some other thoughts. Uh, God has given us his thoughts. Again, I'm not trying to be, I, I just want to be obvious and clear about what God is saying. There is the covering of the gospel of Christ, which God has in his grace poured out, lovingly offered. And for those who don't want this covering, there is another option, which he would rather you not take. And it's to be found as those who are amongst those being treaded out in the winepress of the wrath of God. There's two ways to pay for sin. The blood of the eternal covenant that comes from the veins of Jesus or by receiving rightfully the wrath that you deserve, the wrath that I deserve. And so my question, I just want to put it before you. Do you read this text and say, praise the Lord that he does away with sin and evil? Or do you think, no, I don't like that. And I would caution you on how you respond. We're going to go into worship. And we're going to worship the people of God from all of history worship because we know that God has provided a way through the suffering servant to find delight. But I can't read this text without putting that before you. Oh, that you would be found at the banquet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, your word is uncomfortable to us at times. Frankly, when we read it rightly, it's uncomfortable to us most times. Even in your beauty, you're a wonder to us. Even in your beauty, your your ways are higher than our ways. Even in your beauty, we, we have a hard time even submitting to your beauty which we find in this passage. 
You are adorned in beautiful garments. And you are doing what is most loving. You are taking care of division. You are taking care of cancer. You are taking care of all of the, the, the divisive things of this world, all of the devastating and destructive and death-filled things in that wine press. You are dealing with all of that. Lord, we as uh, rebellious people, we need the gospel of Jesus. I deserve to be in the wine press. I deserve to have my blood spattered on your garments because I have sinned against you. But Lord, in your grace, you offer me the gospel. You offer me the sacrifice of Christ. Lord, would we be a people who rest and trust in your goodness and in your justice and not create our own? Not try and weasel our way out to feel better, to find some other reprieve, but Lord, that we would feel the drawing of your spirit, the conviction of your spirit to call out to you to say, I need my sins dealt with. Would we be that kind of a people? And would we enjoy the banquet around you in eternity? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.